0: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening around the world. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Alexander, and you're listening to Ivy Exec Insights, a weekly podcast brought to you by Ivy Exec, an elite network of global thought leaders. You can visit us at ivyexec.com and join our growing executive network. In today's episode, you will have a chance to hear Drinking from a different well How women's stories change what power means in action led by our guest speaker, Annette Simmons, public speaker, trainer, and author. Annette Simmons is the author of five books, including The Story Factor, named by CEO Reed as one of the 100 best business books of all time. In this session, we will cover how competitive goals are undermined by silence collaborative voices, how to protect collaborative thinking in competitive systems, as well as designing systems that reward both sides of predictable paradoxes, instead of choosing one side or the other. Enjoy the episode.
1: Thanks. Um, So I'm glad to be here. And um, I I just thought, you know, we'd have a chance to to think through some things that uh, are kind of complicated and see if we can't come up with some clarity. One of the things that is really complicated is, is why aren't there more women in power? Um, and uh, I suggest that you actually do have a theory in your head about why there aren't more women in power. And and I want you to call it up. Like, what is? How do you explain that to yourself? Um, because it'll change what solutions you look for. Is it a power struggle, um, or maybe it's a struggle to define what power is for. So if you think about it, let's just imagine that you had all of the power in the world. Suddenly, you have all the power in the world. What's the first thing you do? Um, if your imagination kind of skips over the Lamborghinis and the Coachella parties, and you imagine that maybe you would use your power to end the war in, in, in Ukraine, or to address climate change, or protect migrants. I'd like to suggest that your narrative about power is prioritizing collective well-being at least as much as your own personal individual well-being. But that's not currently the power um, that's being offered by competitive systems. If you, if you expect to have enough power to protect others from harm, if that's what power means to you, then we're going to have to redesign these systems. Let me let me just share a story uh, to illustrate. So uh, back in the 80s, I worked for J. Walter Thompson in Australia, and Ian Chambers and I both worked for the same client. It was Ford. Um And Ian uh, is a veteran advertising man. Just, you know, think of your stereotype. That's him. And he oversees the TV budget, which is about $36 million. And so 30-year-old me, I'm hired to test database marketing. We used to call it direct marketing. It's grown up. Um uh, So I was given a budget of $200,000 to run test programs with a bunch of dealers. And uh it was working way better than anybody expected um but back then the only way that i could prove that the the you know uh, mailings were actually driving sales is i had to match up when the mailing came and and when there was a spike in sales so i went to ian chamber's office and i said ian i need to get the sales figures i have to make a presentation next monday and ian looks around and he's like uh i don't i don't have those sales figures anywhere um they're in angela's office and so I run up to Angela's office um and and Angela looks at me and goes, "Ian keeps those what and so I go back to Ian's office, and he's not there. Well, it takes me until Friday evening, and at this point, Ian is uh about to get on the elevator to go have drinks with his posse. Um, and I run up to him, and I'm like, Ian, I'm so glad I caught you. You know, I'm going to have to work over the weekend now. Um, uh Tell me, uh where are those sales figures? And Ian makes this kind of creepy smile, and he puts his hand in his pocket, and he pulls out this keychain flashlight, and he turns it on, and he starts to shine it on my breasts, left and then right. And he says, you know what, I don't seem to be able to find those sales figures anywhere. Well, I'm, I am not a bit of fluff, but like other women uh, with an abusive past, uh, there's at least one in three, I think, and that may even be um, a, a smaller number than that is accurate. I just froze. I, 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 I don't know where my brain went, but nothing is happening. I can't speak. I can't move. And he's shining that light. And so, finally, the, the ding of the elevator doors and open and then they get all him and all of his posse get on on the elevators. And even before the doors close, I can hear them just uproar and laughter. They thought it was hilarious. My brain did not come back until about 3 a.m. It was like I was in shock. Ian did not see me as a colleague. He saw me as competition because that $200,000 came out of his $36 million TV budget. Well, Monday morning, I, I make my presentation, um, and the client decides to increase the data budget from 200000 to $2 million. Now, from Ian's competitive narrative, he just lost $2 million do- dollars out of his TV budget. And TV is glamorous. I mean, they have champagne on the set. There's all these gorgeous models. Uh, they go on location and database marketing. What I was doing, it is not glamorous, not by any stretch of the imagination. It's just a lot of, um, uh, paying attention to details. And so, if you think about it, many of the goals that women pursue without pay. Unpaid labor are actually unglamorous from a competitive context. Uh, the logistics of building relationships, taking turns, sharing information, sharing power, inventing specific situations to accommodate diversity, all of those from a competitive narrative appear to undermine the big, glamorous wins and automation. That uh, have been idealized. So competitive systems define power as the ability to dominate, the, to control. So power over, whereas the power to collaborate really means kind of power with. Uh, we we share information, and we we use these terms all the time, but we have yet to document and unravel the coercive logistics and algorithms that protect power over at the expense of power with. If we continue to see business as a game, we will continue to, number one, identify our opponents, and number two, exploit opportunities. You see, that's why Ian saw me as a competitor. His narrative just makes it obvious that that sharing power would have threatened his dominance so he did his best to neutralize me and my ideas he used public humiliation and he used sexual harassment and his strategy worked in the short term so don't get me wrong i i know both men and women enjoy the power to compete it's just that my research Shows that, that women, when I asked them to tell me stories about power, what, what does power mean? What was the last time you were powerful? They, uh, their stories were, were slightly different. They also expected to have enough power to protect people, to avoid harm, to nurture. And you know what? In a competitive context, avoiding harm by protecting others ends up getting defined as as being unfocused, as being weak, and as being wishy-washy. Those who want the power to protect, we are going to take our eyes off of the ball if we see that ball hurtling into a group of toddlers. And it doesn't mean we're unfocused. It means we're multi-focused. And you know what? We don't have systems That can accommodate that kind of paradox. It looks like indecision instead of balancing a paradox. So think about also the metaphors that that are embedded within the competitive narrative. That you know, you I'm sure you've heard no 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 pain no gain, right? That's just an assumption. Um, And there's a a phrase from the uh, French Revolution called uh, a metaphor that was invented. uh, you you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet now that 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 metaphor was coined to justify murder specifically that's where that came from and so these these you know th- this idea that that winning just means that you're going to have to do a little harm. people are just going to have to suffer well what that does is de empathize anyone who's squeamish about that harm being done. So the core assumption is that in a competitive system is that that winning is worth doing harm. And it is so embedded in our metaphors and our logistics, we don't even think to question that these systems have begun to block our power to protect others. People are leaving their jobs because of moral injury. Um, When, and that's, that, that phrase has been coined recently, uh, when there is a logistical and a systemic inability to do the right thing, we leave. You know, and, and this is, this is not, again, it's a bell curve, uh, but, but the male and female aspects of, of this point of view, and not, not getting into stereotypes, but statistics show that men are slightly more likely to invo- enjoy competitive wins than women are. So there's this video game that was rigged to, to let, uh, let people just win, 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 win. Um, and, uh, they put people, uh, men and women in front of this machine and, and the men just kept playing. They liked all of these women. The women kind of peeled off. You know, uh, given a choice, uh, between, and this is another piece of research, given a choice between a competitive framework to reward, uh, tasks completed and, um, uh, 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 uh no words, um, and and a um, collaborative framework where everybody gets rewarded for everything they did. So, for instance, in a competitive framework, that would mean that whoever does, gets the the most achieved gets more highly rewarded than just piecework, and everybody getting getting rewarded based on their specific numbers of achievements. Well, women chose this this more piecework. Um, sort of frame and the men slightly more chose a competitive frame because it's more fun. And it's not that men and women are not equally competent. The difference is what we love. And if, if it's just more fun, more glamorous, more exciting for some people to set things up as a competition. uh, But For collaborators, when we're given a choice, we just aren't as in love with competition. And see, Ian saw me as an opponent instead of a colleague. And framing life as a game may make it more fun for those people who love competition. But for those of us who instinctively just prefer shared play, it creates distress, moral distress and that's a, a coined phrase now uh that's that that originated from nurses when they were uh, nurses were leaving their jobs and so a lot of this comes from a, a, a studies of attrition like why did they leave um and the nurses uh, expressed uh, a lot of the time they left because of what they called moral distress the competitive reasoning that built their systems the zero tolerance um it just built up an environment where generosity gets interpreted as a lost opportunity to, you know, make a deal. Um, zero tolerance simply can't accommodate the fact that, that empathy in action is, is usually going to deviate from the norm. We actually kind of bend the rules for someone in, who, who doesn't fit in the rules. This whole idea that, 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 Consistency equals quality, um, uh, overrules the idea that there, there are situations where you have to bend the rules instead of, um, trying to automate everything. Patients, uh, the, the, and, and I don't mean like patients in a hospital. I mean like the, the quality of patients being able to wait. Um, uh, that gets overruled as a lack of speed. Uh, and kindness, uh, looks like inefficiency in these systems. So when, when caretakers feel powerless to care and protect, we shut down. And, you know, let's talk about that shutdown. What happened to my voice? Well, you know, I've told this story before several times and, and inevitably, certainly the guys, I hear, why didn't you just knee them in the balls? I'm telling you from personal experience that that was not an option for me. I mean, I was frozen. And I'm not the only woman who experiences a freeze response when we're threatened by aggression. And it may start out as psychological, but it turns physiological really fast. And, uh, this shutdown does tend to happen more to women than men. And if you think about, um, uh, caveman days, when, when there was an aggressor, we're in a relationship with an aggressor, they turn on us. It would just made more sense to shut down because you needed to keep that relationship. And if you shut down, then you can keep, deescalate that situation and you end up keeping your relationships intact and and uh you know if you have four or five kids you can only carry so many so you need these relationships intact so it makes sense that perhaps um a survival instinct for a collaborator is to just freeze um when a competitor threatens them i don't know but uh it's possible women may be, you know, primed to go silent when threatened. Um, I know that intimidation and threats uh, are being used to silence women, uh, and we even signed contracts that promise to never say another thing about it again. Uh, and while it looks like we're folding like a cheap tent, we live to fight another day. We live to find another way to collaborate, and eventually – We find a place to work that offers the kind of power we want, or we go and design it from scratch. Competitive narratives produce a predictable form of blindness, and and it's the blindness to the harm done in the name of winning. And so they tend to generate this hair trigger negative reaction to collaborative solutions. It's a form of tunnel vision. Ian could not, would not see me as anything other than an opponent. And, and that blinded him from seeing the advantage of sharing information because from his competitive perspective, he would lose power if he shared the information. And, and, and here's the other thing is that Ian and I didn't just see the problem differently um uh, we defined the problem differently and that's the real threat uh right now of competitive systems protecting our power to make moral choices uh to collaborate to protect to nurture so one of the stories and i had i gathered all these stories and and one of the stories that uh, really illustrates this at the logistical difference between how you look at a collaboration, how you define the problem was a friend of uh, mine named Robin. Uh, and so she, she told this story. She said, you know, this guy knocks at my door and, uh, I open the door and he's like, is your husband home? And she says, I don't have a husband, but if you can talk to me, whatever you wanted to talk to a husband about, I'm sure we can resolve it. And so she says it's the tree cutters, you know, from the power company, uh, and they want to cut her trees, uh, the branches of her trees to g- get away from the power lines. But the thing is that the poles weren't standing straight. And so if the poles had been standing straight, those branches wouldn't have been near the electrical wires. And yet, they still think the the solution to their problem is to cut her trees. They don't look at it the same way she does. So so uh, she goes outside and, and says, well, let's have a look. And he points to one branch, and she said, no, nope, if you straighten the pole, that wouldn't be it. And he points to another branch, and she's like, no, nope, no, nope, you're not going to cut that one either. And so finally, you know, she had to go into the house and go to the bathroom, and when she came back out, guess what? They cut every single one of those branches. And they act like it's a mistake. The crew chief acts like, you know, the the guys who are working with him didn't speak good enough English to understand what was going on or uh oh that was just a mistake. And and this is where gaslighting comes in. From a competitive form uh frame of view, gaslighting is considered a legitimate strategy. Um, in the art of war, deception is a battle strategy. So so anyway, Robin's getting mad at this point. And uh so she goes to find a ladder and she leans the ladder up against the tree and she climbs up in the tree and she just sits there, right under the guy who's, you know, got the chainsaw. And uh they've never seen anything like her before. And uh she's not moving. It's a standoff, and her, her name neighbor came from across across the way to find out what's going on and she she said go in my house and get the family bible for me and something that she said was you know she keeps it because it's the family bible not necessarily it's a bible but that she brings her neighbor brings it out and hands it up to her in her tree and robin starts reading out of genesis about how we're here to protect the earth and take care of nature and so anyway, they finally leave and, um, she says that this parade of cars comes, comes up her drive rate. Um, the first guy is like, ma'am, we need to talk to you about this. And here's, here's the, the piece that I love about this story is that she said, well, come with me. And she would take them out to the part of, of the land where the poles were crooked. And they were in the trees. And she asked them to use their own eyes and ears to say, do you think that those electrical wires would be touching if those poles were straight? And so getting them to trust their own eyes and ears, taking them on a little field trip, there's nobody that can disagree. Yeah, you're right. This is, this is a problem. And so that uh, the cars get more and more expensive as the the executives get higher and higher up in the the uh, pecking order mm-hmm. until this finally this big Mercedes comes comes down her driveway and this man knocks and he's got a nice suit on and he goes ma'am I'm here to let you know that we will be straightening the poles up this week and I hope you're happy about that And she says, why, yes, that would make me really happy. But that is an example of a story that women tell that men just don't tell that often. And and one of the elements of these stories is that women uh, interpret power as the ability to trust their own eyes and ears in spite of gaslighting. This isn't random. Um, and from a competitive you know point of view, it's not even malicious. It's just how they play the game. So gaslighting is a chronic pattern of competitive narratives that we must address. When the shoots and the ladders of competitive reasoning prioritize dominance to the point that they legitimize misdirection, we either agree to stay blind, to the harm that's done, or we decide to trust our own eyes and ears. Have you heard of uh, Suzanne Simard? She's the one who documented that complex network underneath forests, um, mycorrhiza, that communicates uh, mother trees, sharing food with other trees, Friend trees actually swapping carbon, some need it in the fall, some need it in the spring. You know, nature's solutions often defy competitive reasoning. It's not just survival of the fittest, Um, or if it is, the fittest are the ones that know how to share. So anyway, she, she does this research and, and the result of her research in understanding the mycorrhizae beneath the, 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 um, roots Is that she can now explain all the harm that's been done with solutions, uh, that, uh, include clear clear cutting, um, things that look like big solutions or, or this theory that, uh, you could have single species forests and we only grow the best trees, um, attempts to use order rather than study this Disordered success of generosity and distributed power. Forest managers, when she first published, called her work girly, just to discredit her findings. That was enough. Um, they frame collaborators as weak, as wishy-washy, or naive, and that's where the gaslighting comes from, trying to convince you uh, that you you don't see what you see, and when you expect it. It's easier to ignore, and it's easier to continue to trust your own judgment so that you can continue to find these collaborative solutions. It took me 30 years to reclaim my voice. Um, it was triggered in that that story I told you in the beginning, but, but I went back to graduate school, um, and I began to study how collaboration works logistically. What is it that, that we can do to bring a group together? And so I have lots of uh, ideas in the book about how you continue to use your voice, but let me just share a little story of a woman I witnessed who is a role model for me. She, um, I was working with the Pentagon and, um, uh, they were supposed to be uh, managing a budget for, uh, taking care of soldiers and, and their families, except for, It's military. And so they look at a a budget meeting as a battle meeting. And they were, and you know, you think about it. We've, we've, we've even agreed to lie to each other because a whole lot of uh, budget meetings we go into, we decide how much money we need and then we add 30% or we double it. So we're all agreeing to lie to each other. And um, that's, that's generated from this competitive system. Anyway, so this two-star general. Just leans across and he yells at this female lieutenant colonel, why don't you just grow up? And she leaned forward and in a a tone that was both cool and warm, she said, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but could you be more specific? She's my role model. It's not about shrinking. It's about trusting your own judgment. And it's about recognizing that most of these intimidations are a bluff. You know, women uh warn of of future harm, maybe more often. You look at, at women's groups and what sort of um, um, issues they're concerned with, we're concerned with um and it's it's archetypal it's uh there are old mythology stories about women warning about harm uh Cassandra is is one if you know the the story of the Trojan War, and uh the Greeks were pretending that they they had lost they went and hid their ships around the corner and they put a bunch of soldiers in this trojan horse uh and so Cassandra, who had been blessed with the gift gift of prophecy said don't open the gates because that's it. If you open the gates to let in this horse, um, we're all going to die. And in uh, a lot of mythology that people have been convinced that Cassandra's voice was cursed, they use a little Me Too story that the god Apollo, uh, she had promised her um, to, to sleep with him and she didn't and therefore she was cursed. And that's one way to look at it. But the way I look at it is – is uh, it's the people who are so in- entranced with a battle narrative that they can't hear. Those are the ones that are cursed. And so um, being stuck in a battle narrative shrinks your ability to predict and avoid harm. So ask yourself, when was the last time you felt powerful? Just come up with a story. Think about it. When was the last time your body was like, oh, I'm powerful? Were you smashing an opponent like a bug? Or were you helping a bug to escape into the sunshine? We need systems that allow us to choose based on what our eyes and ears tell us about the situation. So the logic that is required in order to protect our collective survival Requires us to check in with our own eyes and ears, to examine, reveal, and pay attention to the true consequences um, that are that um, of harm that are continuing in the name of playing by the rules of the game. So, how do we do this? I, you know, I don't think any of us are going to be able to do anything with the Ian's. And they're creepy flashlights um, because breaking competitive rules by collaborating will attract threats from dominators. Um, you know, I, I complained about Ian uh, when my brain finally came back and I was told that he would be warned that this would never happen again and that I never needed to bring it up. Well, the client had just increased my budget from 200,000 to 2 million. So what did they do? They hired a man to be my boss. I just didn't fit their imaginations of what a manager looked or acted like. And and for a while I just tried to keep doing my job, but this guy just spent more and more of his time trying to control me instead of letting me do my job one day he was standing in my office door and he was blocking my ability to exit my, you know, to, to leave. So he was explaining in not the nicest way possible that I was insubordinate and I was supposed to show up for this meeting or that meeting. And I needed to send him reports. And, you know, frankly, for his safety and for mine, I decided I needed to take a little break and I tried to leave my office. And he blocks me. And suddenly I can see this, is, this little Irish guy is a little leprechaun of a man. And I'm a big girl. And I could see he was bluffing. Rarely is intimidation more than a bluff. And I just couldn't manage to feel as weak as he wanted me to. I could see it with my own eyes that he could not bully me without my permission. But I was kind of wishy-washy on that. See, that evening, I left the office. I was be treated like this, arms pumping. How dare he? And then I'm like, I'm going to quit. So I turn around, I start walking right back to the office, and I get maybe mm, 10 yards, and I'm like, this doesn't feel smart. So I turn around, I start walking back home. I did this seven times (laughs) back and forth and back and forth. And I'm telling you this because that's what it looks like when you're managing a paradox. There's the paradox of do we compete or do we collaborate? If we want to do both, we invite ambiguity because being decisive. Always choosing the advantage for yourself or your company is inevitably divisive when handling a paradox. So decisiveness turns into divisiveness. Was I going to take care of me or was I going to take care of the business? And toggling back and forth between diverse viewpoints is not indecisive. It is how curiosity and discovery operate in real life, and we are being discouraged from that kind of curiosity because we get told that we are weak, um, if if or unfocused. And the truth is, we're multi-focused. Um, and if we're going to change systems so that we increase the number, amount of collaboration, uh, that's going to have to change. So. And triggered my curiosity. That conflict triggered my curiosity. I did. I decided to go and study more. I went back to the United States um, uh, to study the logistics of collaboration. You know, I learned how often competitive reasoning leads us to erect silos that hoard resources. Um, and undistributed resources means that inequality is even worse than it needs to be. Assumptions of superiority are a guaranteed form of blindness. And applying the single story of competition turns paradox into an imaginary battle. Um, so, these two different stories frame our imaginations in ways that we really can't see or understand when we're in them so i want you to um imagine let's just do a, an exercise of the imagination um imagine that uh this is a storyteller's tra- trick we actually go to visit we imagine the world of a story so imagine that that we're we're coming up with a story in a world where the, the The life is a game you can win. You fight, you keep secrets, you have to dial down your empathy, and you expect that you'll do a little harm as the cost of doing business. See, so your assumptions filter what you can imagine. So imagine that we're we are designing a village. So imagine in your head a village where competition is king, where um it's all about using competition and adversarial processes to to solve problems. So I want you to imagine what does this town look like? What do the buildings look like? Um are there people out? Uh what are the people doing? Um Who is most important in this village that values uh, competitive wins? Now, imagine in that village that there's a well. What does that well look like? Is it guarded? Where's the bucket? How do you get water? Who decides who gets water? And what does the water taste like in your imagination? of that village. Let's imagine another village. A village where collaboration is the first priority. What do you see in your mind's eye? Look at this village in your mind's eye. What what do the houses look like? What are people doing? And now imagine what the village well looks like. Who gets water? How do you get water? Is it easier or harder to get water? What are the people doing? And finally, what does that water taste like? The worst impact of the dominance of competitive reasoning is that it fails to imagine what it cannot see. I'm not an idiot. I know we can't choose one or the other. Equally would be disaster my hope is that we can teach ourselves to tolerate the ambiguity that comes from choosing both and that we can revise our metrics, we can redesign our decision-making procedures, the way we define problems, and we can redesign our ranking systems to anticipate and tolerate the benefits of ambiguity because morality is never a single story. It's the result of many stories, stories that are heard and understood and woven into a much bigger story that actively seeks to reduce the number of losers created in our systems. So studying women's stories show me that these two forms of reasoning are often at odds. Power with undermines power over and vice versa. And it's time to design systems that can tolerate the flexibility of balancing that paradox. We need to be able to care for us and them to choose safety and freedom, even if it looks like it's ambiguous in the middle. Because when we get in the middle, we start to come up with solutions in the divisive world, certainly in the U.S. right now. you end up getting torpedoes from both sides. So the people who actually are understanding that, that we balance the paradox are the ones that are, that are getting attacked. And it starts with the stories we tell ourselves about what is most important and how we define the problems that we need to solve first. It's a priority issue. Nobody's agreeing, nobody's saying we we don't have to solve the problems. The problem is that speed and efficiency have made these short, urgent problems much more uh, get much more attention than the long-term problems. And when we decide that the answer is both, we have to go about the business of redesigning systems to reward wins still, absolutely, to reward wins for sure, but also, To reward generosity, to reward caretaking, and to reward sacrifice. Because leaving these behaviors unpaid means that this work is left undone. So, I'd ask you to think about what it is that you might change about the way that you approach problems and analyze a situation, how much of that competitive narrative has brainwashed you um, into overlooking collaborative solutions.